0: Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of LGBTIQA+, living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Djar Djar Wurrung land and respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land.
1: Martin I was born in Melbourne I'm a baby boomer just I think I was born in 1964 my pronouns are he and him and I certainly identify as gay childhood was very lonely I felt very isolated I knew that I was gay from a very early age I reckon six or seven years old I didn't know what it was called but I knew it was different And I continued to know it was different. And I felt very isolated. I felt like the only gay in the village for a long, long time, way up until when I went to university when I was 17. So I started uni uni early. And it was then was the first time that I really could see that there was somewhere to go with this. But I I was lonely and scared, I think. Mm. There was... A person the year above me at high school, who I guessed was gay, he is now my best friend. So we met after we both finished high school, and um, in fact we went to RMIT together but doing two completely different courses. I guessed he was gay and found out later. You know, we're talking, I finished high school 1981, so probably the closest thing was boy george and culture club and at the age of 16 17 i'm not sure that i saw boy george as a role model i probably saw that as a little bit way out there and scary and you know and thank goodness he did what he did because i'm thinking he was you know part of the change but not a role model and i didn't really know anyone else that you know in media or in films or anything it was really there's this huge feeling of isolation from the rest of the world and um i had no idea how many people out there were like me i knew that they would be there but i didn't know where to find them how to find them no internet back then i grew up in two different places in my childhood though for the majority of it was in sandringham in melbourne so very middle class leafy suburb on the beach we were i guess relatively privileged family you know nice house swimming pool all of that sort of stuff the other part of my life as a child was we lived in indonesia for two and a half years so there were two completely different experiences there middle class sandringham very conservative i guess and it told me to keep quiet I think probably if I'd been living or growing up in a city Melbourne or somewhere a bit, I don't know, groovier, it might have been different, but possibly it was more the time frame. You know, we're talking 70s, early 80s when I was growing up and it was very different then. Mum and dad, four kids. I was the second youngest. Um, My little brother was adopted. My older brother and sister are a good bit older than me. My sister's 13 years older than me and my older brother is 10 years older than me, I think. Looked like the normal family from the outside, but no family is normal and I don't know what normal is. Mum and Dad, very traditional. Dad worked really long hours in a corporate, you know, high-profile role. Mum cooked and cleaned. And that was kind of the, the role models that I saw until my sister got married and i could see that the role models that they had were very different it was much more equal they both worked they both cooked they both cleaned the house and that was different from a childhood probably me and my, my sister my sister looked after me a lot um, i think she protected me from the world from loneliness she protected me from mum and dad my, mum and my parents are quite a lot older than most people's parents, I guess, mum was 39 when I was born. And by the time I was sort of a, a teenager, they were close to retirement. And I don't know, they seemed older than they probably were. But um, we didn't do much. We did a lot of overseas travel, but when I was younger. So by the time I got to high school, they didn't go anywhere and certainly nowhere that I wanted to be with them. So my sister used to take me on holidays, she and her husband. We went you know, skiing once or twice and, you know, on a, a boat once and we did some really fun things and I think she looked after me and, and basically gave me some happiness and life outside of this very s- sad lonely existence as a child and I was lonely I didn't have very many friends I still don't have many friends I'm pretty selective about who they are but back then I probably needed more She was the first person I told and I actually told her that I was bi and she said, oh, come on, and uh, challenged me on it and I said, yeah, right. I think she'd sensed that I was a bit different to most kids. I was not into sport. I was um, more into music and I played the guitar and liked cooking and, you know, I wasn't the blokey kid that played football. So I think she probably had a a guess that I was a bit different. So I told her. um, We were sitting on my bed in my bedroom and sort of said, I've got something to tell you. And so we had a bit of a chat about that. And then she said, do you want to tell mum and dad, you know, do you want my help with that? So I said, i like to tell mum. So I told mum and mum was hilarious. She just sort of said, um, oh, darling, I know that. What are we going to cook for dinner? And it just went like that. Dad was a bit different. Dad was a highly intellectual man, thought a lot. And because of that, he wasn't homophobic. He didn't have a problem with it because I think his intellect worked through that. But the first thing he wanted me to do was see a psychiatrist because he wanted to make sure I was okay, I think. And so I did, and that was awkward. (laughs) Um, Then I told my best friend at school at that time, who I still see, and in fact he married a friend of mine, and he was great with it. And then I sort of, nothing else happened until I went to university. I told my sister first, thinking if there was a problem, I needed her to know, because I wasn't sure that I would be kicked out of home. I wasn't. It was a bit awkward, but I wasn't. But there was certainly a fear of rejection and, you know, I guess the ultimate being kicked out of home. No worse things happened to others, but that was a fear. And I wasn't. It was all fine until the first partner came along and... I think that was probably a bit more challenging for Dad than he thought it was going to be or, you know, had expected. Dad would have been very, very no-sex-before-marriage with all of the, all the siblings. He didn't know what to do with me because here I am in my bedroom with the door closed with a boy. So that was a bit different. It was my first year at university and I would have been six, 17 turning 18 about then still living at home and that partner and i moved in together six months after we first met so it was early the next year which was my second year at university dad chucked the shits then essentially and really did not like that because i think that was this sort of real thing you know i had a car that i was paying off through dad and first thing he said was you're not taking the car and i was starting to pack some clothing and he said well they don't belong to you. It was a bit awkward. My sister jumped in once again and protected me. And it was all okay after a while. And Mum and Dad are both dead now. But as long as I can remember, they would never use the word Martin's partner. It was always Martin's friend. And um, Dad did a family tree. Um, he spent years and years researching the family tree. And then on the wall in our house was... Um, the family tree and there's my mum and dad married my brother and sister both married with their partners there's martin no partner even though i had one so the partner was excluded i don't know why was they was dad embarrassed i don't know but there was a pretty strong exclusion there and um when my sister saw it she she hit the van with her and she just you know was very upset about it and upset for me and I don't know whether she challenged mum and dad about it. Probably not. Um, what was the point, you know? And she's, she's very protective and she was very upset for me. And I remember being given a hug and saying, oh, what, this must really hurt. And I said, well, yeah, it does, but kind of expect it. You know, I think at the time, growing up gay, you just expect to be excluded. And that's, that, was my, that was my lived experience then. My sister was and probably still is my best friend. Mm -hmm. Um, She and I click. We understand each other. We share the same politics, which is very, very left. My other siblings, my older brother, is the exact opposite. He's an engineer. Everything's black and white for him. The world is either this or that, you know, to the extent that he thinks if you're unemployed, then you're lazy. My brother and I don't get on very well. And in fact, we, we, we are now no longer talking. Um, and it's not because I'm gay, although I don't think he likes that. I remember once we are in family gathering and he has two kids and he said something like, "Oh, you know, his, his son doesn't have a girlfriend yet. And I said, well, I might not be a girlfriend. And his response was very sharp. He's not gay, Martin. So I thought, yeah, gay's not a good thing for him. Mm-hmm. Then my little brother completely different character. He came into the family very, very challenged. He was six months old when he was born. Um, We adopted him. He had some fairly significant learning disabilities and he was just... I think my parents were trying to do a really, really lovely thing, bringing this person into the family who was really going to struggle with life. I'm not sure our family was the best family for that. You know, the rest of us all went to university My little brother really had some intellectual challenges and learning disabilities and really didn't fit with the family very well. He died about five years ago um, from a drug overdose, I believe. So a very different person. And um, he and I never, never connected. But then I didn't connect with my older brother either. So it left my sister. would have been 1982 I came out. And I think, to be clear, the legislation... It, it, being homosexual wasn't illegal. The sex between two men was illegal. And I think lesbians were just ignored by legislation. I, I, I believe that's the case. So it was the sex between two men. And what I do remember is that when my second partner... Was my first partner for eight years, so I went on for a while... Then there was the second partner. My second partner and I went to Tasmania and we were quite aware that if we had sex in Tasmania that would be illegal, that it was illegal there. And, in fact, we went to the the square on the the water and we signed the petition with Rodney Croon and my mum was there and she signed the petition as well and that that was pretty good. I got a photo of my mum signing this petition. So I was aware then that, yes, there was pretty significant legislation. And I think I'd also become aware then that there was a very different approach to the age-sex limit. So for for gay people, the, the sex limit was much, much higher than for straight people in many states. I don't know whether that's been completely corrected now. I certainly hope it has. I think it is in Victoria and Tasmania. I think when the laws changed there, they probably had the best laws in, in the country. I'm hoping the legislation, and I'm not not so good with the legislation, but I'm hoping it's pretty equal now. Hey, we've got gay marriage (laughs) or same-sex marriage. And that was huge. That was huge for me. That was a really significant change in legislation that said you people... Are equal, but the process we had to go to to get to it was just horrendous. Mm. You know, I can't believe that there was a plebiscite or whatever it was called that asked the rest of Australia, are these people okay to be equal with us? Just horrendous. And that did change a lot for me. I don't necessarily want to get married. My partner and I have been together for 19 years. This is my third partner. We're pretty comfortable with things how they are. I don't necessarily want to get married. I don't think he would. But the legislation made a difference. It said I could. I was in a relationship that I thought was a monogamous relationship at the time, but absolutely aware of it. Then it was, I guess, a little bit later on that people really, really started dying from AIDS and people that I knew and that was incredibly frightening you know if if there was any movement towards legalization of homosexuality or the acts or even public acceptance or it was never going to be celebration back then but if there was any move towards that i think the aids crisis set it back years i remember being at my first job which was at a small dairy. I, I studied food science and I worked at a, a small dairy. And well, we, had, we had these little lockers that we would put our lunch and you know, clothing and things like that. And I came in one morning to see a newspaper article pinned to my locker. And I think it was a Herald Sun, and I think the, the, the line was, Gay blood kills babe. And apparently, you know, a, a baby had been killed by being infected by HIV-infected blood, but this was stuck on my locker. So that was a bit horrendous. So I, I pulled it down and I took it in and showed my manager when, when she arrived. I was always at work much, much earlier. I tested the, the milk when it arrived and things like that. And I showed her and she knew that I was gay. Scary thing to tell your boss, and it was back then. And I showed her this and she said, look, let's take it straight to the, 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 the big manager. And I really didn't want that to happen. He was a grumpy, solid German man. And I thought, this is not going to go well. She encouraged me to go in there with this, and that's how I did. And he was actually very supportive of me, but he tore shreds through everyone in the factory and demanded to find out who did it and and made this big fuss about it, which I think actually made it even more difficult for me to work there. But I survived through that. There was a gay man that worked in the factory component. I worked in the lab, and he was repeatedly harassed Beaten up, and I think they locked him in the cool room at one stage. So this poor guy had a pretty shit time. That was the kind of experience that we were used to, I guess, in the 80s. There have been three main relationships in my life and I certainly hope the one that I'm in now, it's been 19 years, I'm very happy, I hope he's very happy, I think he is that, you know, this is the one. I'm in a comfortable Place right now, the first relationship went for eight years and that was rocky, but it was rocky because we met really young, we moved in together very early and very young, you know, we were 18 years old and I still felt a bit like a child but we rented a flat and were living together and trying to do all of those domestic things and cook and clean and and also go to university and and not have much money. And it lasted eight years, which is amazing because we had it all stacked against us. You know, the 80s, homophobia. um, We were both students and struggling, but we made it through to eight years. It eventually broke up because there was no monogamy there and I wanted monogamy and it wasn't. My first partner was was my first love. The reason for the hesitation is I'm trying to remember whether it was actually love or whether it was need, Um, whether it was just me absolutely needing to be with someone because I've been isolated for so long. Mm -hmm. I guess there was love there. Yeah, absolutely. It was certainly hard when the relationship broke up. I fell apart a bit. The second relationship broke up for the same reasons, essentially. The relationship I'm in now is quite different to those two it's far more trusting respectful but in the middle of the second relationship there was a significant car accident Um, my partner was driving the car I was in the passenger seat behind him he did a u-turn in front of a tram on Dandenong Road that was going full speed the tram hit me Um, I don't remember the accident. I went straight into hospital, straight into a coma. I think it was 10 days later that I was taken off the induced coma and it took another couple of days for me to come out of the coma, which um, we believe is that I was actually in a real coma, not an induced coma. I had significant brain injury, head injury, and I couldn't speak. I couldn't read. I couldn't walk. I've learnt to do... A lot of that again my speech is still affected I will struggle to find words and I'm doing pretty good with this but there will be times when I really can't find words and the problem I have is called nominal dysphagia I can always find that word but I can't find the other words that will help me to sound articulate and make sense at times and that that is still a struggle to this day in my job and my work my reading is still significantly affected. I use uh, software to read. So you put a bit of paper in front of me and say, have a quick read of this, that's not going to happen. Even menus at restaurants are a, a challenge and certainly reading books, that that's in the past now. There's epilepsy and a few other things that have come from that accident. But the relationship that I was in when that, that accident happened dissolved about a year or so afterwards, I guess and um that relationship was 10 years the car accident was a life-changing experience and not all for the bad because of the things that had happened i decided to leave the corporate world i was working in the food industry and i I left the corporate world and um, went back to university and studied social work and it was the best thing i've ever done i love being a social worker i went through apart from the the car accident and that really was not the real reason that I, i left I had been working in the corporate world for quite some time, um, you know, all the high-flying stuff, travelling around the world, all of that, and it wasn't necessarily making me happy. The money wasn't making me happy, although it's always nice to have. But there was the Tampa crisis, and I felt very, very, very strongly and very angrily about the decisions that John Howard, our Prime Minister at the time, was making around the Tampa crisis which was the Norwegian vessel with um, people who had sought asylum and, and their boat had sunk and they picked them up and they weren't allowed to come to Australia. And then the awful politics and legislation that John Howard and his government put through to really make it really, really, really difficult for people seeking asylum. That's the core reason I actually left the corporate world because I decided that I wanted to do something about that and so I left that that job and went back to university and studied social work and in fact um, as a social worker you do two major placements and my final placement was in that sector and that's where I worked for the first seven years as being a social worker before joining my current role at the the Castlemaine Community House. Yeah, the real reason for leaving the role was to do something that I felt much more passionate about than selling, you know, natural colours or flavours. I met my current partner um, about a week after I'd resigned. We got to know each other, I guess, over the next year. And it took a year before he moved in with me and he was hesitant about that and so was I. I wanted to make sure that it was the right thing this time, and it was. So we were... Both living in Melbourne, and um, he moved into my warehouse apartment in Collingwood. But it was very, very clear that for him, uh, a flat in the city was not going to do it. He needed garden around him. We bought a block of land uh, in Tarradale, 14 acres, which was lots of grass and a few trees and nothing else. That was to be his garden, and it is, and it now is a really spectacular Um, at least four or five acres of garden, because we've planted thousands of trees. Um, We had Connecting Country come in and and reforest the the back part of the property, which is on the Coloban River, and it's it's an oasis. It just is really fabulous, and I never thought that I would want to live in the country. But um, towards the end of my studies, we bit the bullet and... um, we moved up here. We, we we actually dragged a house, we cut a an weatherboard Edwardian house in half and dragged that up here and put it back together and that's our home now. Yeah, country was a, a bit of a challenge for me at the start, but I love it. And it's just the most fabulous place to live. And this shire is amazing. You know, the, the people, the acceptance and... Um, I guess when we moved to the country, I was concerned that oh, we'd never make friends, and it would be different in the country, and uh, possibly more homophobia. And uh, no, I'm not in this shire. I got the feeling pretty early on that this was a good place for queer people. I thought it's actually pretty safe here. I felt welcomed, and I didn't see a lot of the oh, let's let's call it homophobia that I probably had seen in parts of Melbourne and I think that's probably because of the population that we have here I'm not sure how this shire has changed so much I'm really impressed with what our council are doing and is very very strongly supporting LGBTIQA plus people that's a great thing and um, maybe that's a bit of a change for council. Marriage Equality probably brought it there. It was a big noise that we made for everyone then. The gathering is far, far more public now than it, than it used to be. You know, we run Castlemaine Pride here and there's hundreds of LGBTIQA plus people in the Botanic Gardens or in the the Town Hall (laughs) this year. And that's a change, I think, that public display. So, you know, what we're doing, I guess, is mimicking the things that are happening in Melbourne and Sydney and Dalesford, of course, and bringing that to Castlemaine and this shire as well. And that, that public display of us existing, makes a difference otherwise we all know what it was like to be in the closet but also to have nightclubs that were down a little side alley that no one knew were there except for us and that hidden thing is something i really want us to leave behind so public displays of who we are and that we're here and that we're just normal we're just people that's that's what the message should be I think we had far more challenges back in the 80s. Uh, it was stacked against us, as I said. Um, I don't believe it is now. Not in Australia, other parts of the world for sure. But um, I think we're getting there pretty quickly in Australia and particularly in an shire like Mount Alexander or your North North kit, which has a lot of people that um, are, you know, not just accept who we are, but celebrate who we are. And that's pretty fabulous. Growing up probably helped me to be my authentic self. I think the older I get, the more comfortable I am with myself. I possibly care less about what people think now, but then I also think it's easier. It's easier to tell your boss that you're gay. Even at a job interview, it's easier to to say that now. But I think there's probably also the privilege of getting older and being more settled and perhaps more financially stable, that You know, the last few job interviews that I've been to, which, you know, stack back 15 years now, I came out at my interview because I thought, well, if they're not okay with me, then I don't want to work there. But I wouldn't have done that 30, 40 years ago. That would have terrified me. And I suspect that I wouldn't have got the job back then. In, in the work that I've done in this shire, and it's been terrific to be with the Castlemaine Community House, who has, you know, stood behind me with, with the advocacy that we do because that's that's exactly what that organisation and, and what the Neighbourhood House Network does. But I, I wasn't always an advocate, probably for fear when I was younger. And I guess the first time I thought of advocacy was I remember going to a protest, an LGBTI protest, and it was called Gay and Lesbian back then. And I actually didn't like... The language that was being used there was this really aggressive angry language from the gay protesters that didn't sit well with me because it's not the way i think advocacy is most effective i think you get a lot further if you're polite to people and argue really key points such as you know we use with the the marriage equality campaign which is love is love and it is so you know if we argue logic rather than shout abuse at, at people that, that Sits more comfortably for me. So my initial experience with trying to be an advocate didn't work all that well, and I kind of went off on a sideways battle because then there was HIV, and I worked with the Gay Men's Health Centre um, as a volunteer, and the the Gay Leads Been Switchboard as a volunteer. So that was my channeling for the the gay, lesbian and and transgender communities was to do that sort of work rather than advocacy. But um, as I've grown up, fighting the battle is important and someone's got to do it. And I'm so glad that the gay, lesbian and trans people were able to fight this battle 40 years ago so that we're where we are today. The next step is for trans people to, to get to where, I guess, where lesbians and gays have got to, because I reckon it's still tough for them. And I'd love to change the world so that that we're all just fabulous and not just accepted but but celebrated.
0: This project was made possible with the financial assistance of Victoria's Pride Regional Activation Program and Midsummer Festival and with the support of the Mount Alexander Shire Council, the Mount Alexander Shire LGBTIQA Steering Group and the Queer and Now Radio Program on Main FM 94.9. This podcast has been produced by the Queer and Now team, Shereen Clough and Amalia O'Hara at Main FM 94.9. Editing and original music by Amy Chapman. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such a wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTI QA Plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Kids Helpline 1800 555 1800.